Acts chapter 13. We have come as far as verse 42, but we'll begin in verse 38. Remember, Paul is on his first missionary journey. You might as well just throw those up and leave those up there so that uh, there's Paul's first missionary journey going from Antioch and Syria, which was the hub of the Gentile church. Our attention has moved from Jerusalem to Antioch, from the ministry to the Jews there in Jerusalem, now to the ministry to the Gentiles in the world. Uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas um, setting sail for uh, Cyprus. You can see that we talked about. Then overland, 100 miles to the other end of the island. And then they have sailed up uh, to Paphos there where we see uh, Athaliah and so forth. And where we are this evening, where we left off with these guys, we're up here This Antioch is Pisidian Antioch. This is not the Antioch that they started from. Uh, This up on this high plain of Galatia, you see it there. Uh, Great elevations. There are mountains up here that have snow year-round. They've come up the higher ground. Some feel that Paul either had malaria or typhus. Um, Difficult traveling. Uh, John Mark has left them and gone back to Jerusalem. He didn't even go back to Antioch. He went to his mother's house in Jerusalem. And now Paul and Barnabas are in the middle of this themselves. So as they come to Antioch there in Pisidia, they're preaching the gospel. Uh, People are hearing them. We have his first sermon recorded, Paul, and see how much he stole from Stephen. And... uh, As we come to this point in verse 38, he is getting to the crux of things with this audience of Jews and proselytes there as he had gone in the synagogue. He says, but be it known to you, therefore, men and brethren, that though this man is preached unto you through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins that was central to Paul's message. And by him, all that believe are justified. The first time Paul uses that word, forgiven and justified are two different things. Forgiven, you can be forgiven for the sins you've committed, and they're forgiven. But justified removes them. It's as though they have never happened. There's no longer any record of them. So uh, there's forgiveness and justification. He He says, and by him... Uh, You that believe are justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And the Jews are listening to this, and it's hard for some of them to hear this. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which was spoken in the prophets. Behold, you despisers and wonder and, uh, and perish, for I work a work in your days a work which you shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And he's quoting from Habakkuk there where the Lord says, Behold ye among the heathen, they were captivity, and regard and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. And he says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. It's something they never expected him to do. And he's saying to the Jews here, look out, the same sentence is not pronounced upon you. For you're, you're saying, I don't believe the Lord's doing this, the law of Moses set aside and so forth. He said, look out, you don't fulfill the words of the very prophets by despising this and refusing to believe. Verse 42, and says, when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles, present tense, kept beseeching him. They kept asking him that these words might be preached to them. Now, King James says the next Sabbath, but the next next verse says they were following him. Um, Some manuscripts give the sense of these words might be preached to us between the Sabbaths. It wouldn't be like Paul and Barnabas to wait a whole week before they open their mouth again. You have to understand the picture here. You have the Greek pantheon and then the Roman pantheon in the world that these men and women are living in. 
with all of these different gods, all of this different barbaric and immoral worship, unimaginable, some of it, and yet the Greeks were thinkers more than the Romans, their philosophy and philosophers, and they saw in the Jews something they admired. Here's these people that say there's one God, and they say marriage is honorable, and they say a man should be faithful to his wife, that children should be raised a certain way. And the Romans, as disciplined as they were, that was very appealing to many of them, and particularly the wives. Uh, as the Romans said, every man should have a legitimate wife to bear his children, a concubine um, for his pleasure, and a mistress for his adventure. You know, the wives would be glad to hear one wife. One guy, we're sticking together. So they're coming, they're listening to Judaism, but they are still empty. Because the writer of Hebrew tells it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now here comes Barnabas, a Levite from Jerusalem, no doubt from the school of Gamaliel. And here comes Saul of Tarsus, a member of the Sanhedrin. And again, school of Gamaliel. And, and it's unbelievable for them in Pisidian Antioch to have these, this Pharisee, this leader from the Sanhedrin, and this Levite come. So they had given them an open floor. And as the Gentile proselytes, those who were attracted to Judaism, sat and listened, they're realizing, yeah, you know, we kept the law. If we, if we keep dietary laws, if we keep feasts, if we the circumcision, all of these things, we're still empty. And here comes these authoritative Jews from Jerusalem, and they're telling us that the message they're preaching is that through this person, Jesus, who was their Messiah, there's forgiveness of sins, and that we can be justified. All of our track record is gone. Our, our past is jettisoned. We don't have to deal with any of it. And the Jews, now there's some jealousy, obviously, among them. And it says, then the Jews were going out of the synagogue, but it was the Gentiles then that kept after them, present tense there, that these words might be preached unto them the next Sabbath, or between the Sabbaths. Now, when the congregation was broken up, many of the Jews and religious proselytes, the Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So how remarkable. Paul and Barnabas then speaking. Now they're asking them to continue, which tells us this group of Jews and proselytes were believers, had accepted Christ when Paul preached. And his message is just profound and simple, it is this, you need to continue in the grace of God. Um, in Acts chapter 2, remember, it says they continued in the apostles' doctrine, the breaking bread and the prayers. Of, it wasn't just they continued in doctrine. The Jews had doctrine. They had doctrine about marriage and about child raising and about cleanliness. But it said there that they abode steadfastly, unshakably, in the apostles' doctrine, which was about this Christ and Messiah and his resurrection and forgiveness. So here now it's adding that they should continue in the grace of God. And that's a struggle for all of us. But it is our calling, and it is the only path to glory, God's grace. Uh, Paul, when he writes to Titus, says, The grace of God hath appeared, bringing us salvation, and then teaching us in this present world to deny ungodly lust. And it's God's grace that is causing us to look forward to the coming of our God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says there, it's grace that begins the journey and you're saved. It's grace that continues the journey, learning to deny ungodly lust. And it could only be grace that makes us look forward to the coming of God. How else could that happen? So very, very interesting. Paul becomes the apostle of grace. When you murder the church and you hail them off to prison, you make them blaspheme the name of Jesus, and then he sends you, saves you and sends you on a mission. You become the apostle of grace. 
Uh, interesting, John, the apostle, who you might think is the apostle of grace, <clears throat> John uses the word grace seven times. But to find the seven times, you have to read the gospel, first, second, and third John, and the entire book of Revelation, you'll find the word grace seven times. Paul uses it 120 times through the New Testament. And here they're hearing of it, and him and Barnabas tell these new believers, look, you need to continue in the grace of God. Now, no doubt it's one of the things that he addresses when he writes the letter to the Galatians, uh, which were these people in this area, and he says, I marvel that you were so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. And it's heteros there, another of a different kind, which is not another in the sense that they're saying there's a different Christ, but there is some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed, anathema, let him be eternally damned. So Paul, when he writes to the Galatians, who are these people that are hearing him in this area, he says, we're, we're amazed that you're so soon. He's telling them to continue in the grace of God here. We're amazed to hear that you're so soon removed from the grace of God, the gospel we preach. And look, we're going to see that miracles take place there. Sometimes we think if we could see a miracle, then I'd really, you know, stand. Then I'd really, no, no, it's the word of God all the way through here. Whenever a miracle takes place, we'll see it tonight, it's because God grants it, and he grants it to bear witness of the message that's being preached. The word never bears witness of miracles. It's always miracles that bear witness of the word. There's whole parts of the church today that want to use the word to bear witness of their behavior, which isn't really miracles. Um, so they beseech them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost, look at verse 44, the whole city. Now Antioch and Pisidia is, one of the, is the capital of the area up there. How many people is that? The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Now, you realize, no media. They didn't send out emails. They didn't text each other. There was no, you know, it wasn't on the news. Here's these two guys show up. All they got is their voices. They preach one service. It's depressing to me. And the next Sunday, the whole city's there. I can't imagine. What would that be like? We got a million and a half people in Philly. What if a million people showed up next week? Coffee house would do great, but imagine, <laughs> imagine what that would be like. So it says almost the whole city now comes together to hear the word of God. Through the chapter, we keep hearing the word of God, the Logos. But when the Jews saw the multitudes... They were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting, notice this, and blaspheming. How terrible. So they're filled with envy. Their problem with Paul and Barnabas is not theological. You know, it's not what they're saying from the Old Testament. It's not intellectual, their problem is a sinful problem, it's envy and jealousy, because they can't stand the fact that they've been working on these people for years, and this guy comes from out of town, and one week he's got the whole city coming. So out of jealousy now, and look, by the way, you'll experience that in your life, old friends, one degree or another, one circumstance or another, all of a sudden they're jealous or they're angry at you, they can't believe you're not you know, smoking or goofing off anymore. And, you know, here it says the, the whole city comes and then these Jews, these religious leaders, they're filled with envy and they begin to speak against the things that Paul was preaching, contradicting what he was saying 
and blaspheming. So you're going to preach, you're going to share, some are going to be mad, some are going to be glad. You know, Paul would say this, and I think we need to remember. He says, Now thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, and in them that perish, he says. To the one we are the savor of death unto death, to the other we are the savor of life unto life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt. The idea is water down, the Greek. We are not as many who corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So uh, Paul, Paul says, hey, this is the, way, the deal. You go to share Christ. Some people are getting saved. Some people are responding. Understand, to some people, you have the savor of life unto life, and to other people, you stink. You've got the savor of death unto death. You know, some people hear what you're saying. You realize, wait a minute, there's an open door here. I, I can come to God. I'm a sinner, but there's an open door. And, and there's this, it smells, it tastes. It was a savor of life. And to some people, you saying that, and Jesus is the only way to be saved, and they don't understand it because all they understand is their mobile device. But there's, they, you know, the, the most remarkable mobile device they have sits here between their eyes and their ears. They just l realize a little about that. In there, there's an eight sense of what, what they're saying is, if I'm not included it in this, I'm gone. I'm lost. And to others, you're going to have the savor of death unto death. The same sun that hardens bricks melts wax. The same sun. So it says, it says here, these now are angry. They've been con they start to be contradicting them. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold. I, now, I always like this about Paul. You give him a hard time, he gives you a harder time back. Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, you know, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, speaking to the Jews. But seeing you put it from you, you don't want to hear about it, and you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. You put up a do not disturb sign on your brain, that's your choice. We came to you. You know, Paul was going first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, stepping into the synagogues through Gentile territory because the word of God was open there. Uh, he's a, a scholar, and so is Barnabas. So they're using the basis of the Old Testament to begin to speak to the Jews while the Gentile proselytes are listening. And he said, we came first to you. <laughs> you don't want to hear what we're saying. So you're judging yourself unworthy of everlasting life. Because of that, we're going to the Gentiles. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for the salvation unto the ends of the earth. Quoting from Isaiah 49. The New Testament wasn't written yet, obviously. But when Jesus was a baby and he brought to the temple at 40 days and Simeon and Anna was there, Simeon, when he sees him, he lifts him up. He says, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people, Israel. Jesus would say, I am the light of the world. If he lives in us, there's going to be light. In fact, he says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. You are the soul of the earth. It's emphatic. You alone are the light of the world. You alone. Not Buddhists, not Hindus, nobody else. Certainly not the news. Certainly not Washington. Not the Kremlin. You alone are the light of the world. There's no hope anywhere else now. The darker it gets, in one sense, I praise the Lord because the more your light can shine. And you can see a single candle from five miles away in pitch darkness. You alone are the light of the world. This lost world ain't coming any other way 
The, the politics aren't bringing them. The economy's not bringing them. There's hatred and division and despair everywhere. But there's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, you know, it's interesting because Paul again says that Christ came in the fullness of time. He, you know, his message is being preached where there's no First Amendment rights, there's no Second Amendment rights. The world is crushed under the heel of Rome, and that was the perfect world for his son to come into and die and for the gospel to spread. Look, we're going to watch these guys traveling. Don't worry, I'll keep my laser going. But you, you see the journeys they took there by sea, then by land, 100 miles here, 80 miles there. Understand, Roman roads, interesting thing. At least for me, you'll have to suffer. The Romans, their construction of roads, the major Roman roads, six soldiers could march abreast. That was the smallest road they made with their backpacks and everything. Many of them were broader. The Roman roads were made whenever they could be on bedrock. They used it whenever they couldn't. They put huge rock down, created bedrock, and then they put layers of stones from larger stones to smaller stones and then on top of those they laid these huge massive six foot square four foot square these huge stones each of them had a belly so the water would drain off uh, the stones underneath let the water drain without washing the road away many of those roads were usable 1300 years later you'd like to see you make one of those around here you can get your asphalt machine going. Let's see how it looks a thousand years from now. And the Romans built so much of that roadway that it would have gone around the circumference of the earth twice, over 50,000 miles of paved Roman road with 500 garrisons of soldiers spread out. And all they did was guard the road. They had other soldiers did all kinds of things. But those roads were safe. They were lit at night. The problem was off of those roads, the smaller pathways got washed out by water sometimes. Romans didn't guard them. Paul says in perils of robbers, in perils of floods and so forth. Because on those roads, when people tried to travel, um, they knew you were, you were carrying your bank with you. You didn't have money in TD Bank or something, you know. Uh, you didn't have a credit card. You were carrying your cash. You were carrying your currency. So you were fair game. And he says in Pearl of Beasts, I was reading this, uh, this Greek historian who said on some of these roads, the, not the primary roads, but off of them, we found half-eaten corpses from wolves, skeletons eaten, you know, meat completely eaten away. The wild animals were a threat, and they encouraged people to go in the middle of the day. When the sun is out, they said there's less bears, less wolves, less attacks, but go in groups anyhow. That's the world Paul was traveling. No wonder John Mark went back. And when you, look, when you when they got on the ship, it, well, this wasn't, you know, Carnival Cruise Line or something to, to go here. The, the Romans remarkably made up their mind to destroy piracy on the Mediterranean. They obliterated it. There wasn't a pirate who dared to sail when the Romans had control of the Mediterranean world. And they kept their military ships constantly on the water. Uh, some of them had three or four rowers per oar, so if the wind wasn't moving the boat, they could still move at a high speed. And most of the other traffic was freighters. There were no cruise ships. You couldn't book a room. Paul and Barnabas didn't book a room on a ship. What you did was you got to where there was a port. You found out when there was a ship leaving to go where you were going to go. Then you struck a deal with the captain. And you had to get there a number of days ahead of time because you had to bring your own tent on board you had to bring your own food on board. You had to bring your own toiletries and clothes on board. And they would appoint you a place on the deck. You slept on the deck. If you didn't have a tent, you slept shoulder to shoulder with every, everybody else on the deck because the ships were carrying grain. One of those ships, uh, we're told by a historian, had to pull in 
to Greece, and he said it was 180 foot long, that was 40 foot across the top, and it was 44 foot from the deck to the keel. It carried a thousand tons of grain with a thousand people on the deck sleeping. And if there were storms, you got so... I mean, you have to understand what it was like traveling then. It was remarkable. In fact, after the Romans stopped ruling the Mediterranean, those kind of ships didn't sail on the Mediterranean again until the late 1800s. Nobody had ships that big and that effective because they were bringing the grain constantly from Egypt uh, to, to Italy, to Rome. So... Paul's in the middle of that kind of a circumstance here. And he says, you, you know, you're not, you know, you're you're not worthy. You want to do this? God's called us to go to the end of the earth as a light. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. And they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life. Believed. Now, depending on your theological position, a lot of people want to make a deal. That's the first time predestination is made. It's not the same word for predestination, but uh, as many as were ordained. You can come down on either side of that. It seems to be as many as had fallen in line, as many had fallen into rank. The idea is the Jews didn't do it, but the Gentiles, as many as did that, those were those who were destined for eternal life. You know, I'm always amazed when people argue about predestination. So for them, by the way, it's in Romans, it's in 1 Peter, it's in, you know, it's in different books in the New Testament. You can't get away from it. It's there. And who wants to get away from it anyhow? Um, But I'm always amazed that in Romans chapter 8, where Paul says this, He says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? The question, the answer, if God be for us, who can be against us? Paul says, you know, he's not worried about Calvin, you know, as he's writing this, uh, Arminius. You know, he's writing these great truths, and he says they're to be a consolation. God foreknew you. God made a place for you. God has called you. What do we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He didn't say form clubs, get ready to debate, and you get ornery and and gnarly with each other and prove how smart you are. He said, no. What do we say to these things? He wrote them. His answer is, if God be for us, who can be against us? So it says here, of these Gentiles, they were glad. They glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life, they believed. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all of the region. Just imagine, all through this area, the good news is spreading. It isn't a political gospel. It is not a social gospel. It is the word of God. It is the thing that still has power today, and so many are being drug off to the sidelines on all kinds of temporary causes, and the church should have a heart and a mind for good things, no doubt. But the message, the gospel, the word of God is not a social gospel. It is not a political gospel. It is a heavenly, divine gospel. It was published through the entire region, it says here. But the Jews stirred up devout and honorable women. Now, you got to look out for them. Devout and honorable women. Now, it's devout about their Judaism, obviously. 
and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. So persecution is always the course of the loser, of the defeated. Persecution is always the position of the defeated. Those around us in our culture and in the news today that want to pick upon us because of our faith and they want to portray us as terrorists, I don't know, it gets worse and worse. Persecution is the position of the defeated. And it's all around us today, and they're gnarly and nasty about it as well. This is what they had to do to get rid of Paul and Barnabas. And then it says they expelled them out of their coasts. That word speaks of some physical movement. They came upon them. Literally, they ran upon them with desire. Paul says this, of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's in the next chapter of the book of Acts. Once I was stoned, Three times I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. That's a nightmare to me. In journeyings often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils... um, Sorry. My computer notes... In perils of the heathen, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, weariness, painfulness, watchings, often in hunger and thirst and fastings, often in cold and nakedness, besides all of those things that are without that which cometh on me daily, the care of the churches. You read through that and realize, look, that's written, 2 Corinthians is written on Paul's third missionary journey before he ends up back at Jerusalem at the riot, before he ends up at the shipwreck at the end of the book of Acts. And if 2 Corinthians wasn't written, we'd not have known of any of those things because they're not really recorded in the book of Acts. But you read through that list of things and realize, as Paul and Barnabas and Paul and Silas, as they make their journeys, these are the things that are going on. When were the three times that Paul was shipwrecked? What a nightmare. And, a, and, a, and a, that, that's before the shipwreck at the end of Acts. A night and a day floating in the ocean, my missionary days are over. If I survive that and sharks don't eat me, I'm called to a ministry on land somewhere, you know. So you, you just have to imagine that, that Iconium, it's, it says they expelled them. No doubt they were probably beaten at that point. And they shook off the dust of their feet against them, and then they came to Iconium. So Jesus had said that to the 12, the 70, when you go out and preach, if they don't receive you, they don't receive your word, shake off the dust of your feet against them as a testimony. The Jews would do that. When they came into Israel from Lebanon, from the area of Jordan, when they came from Gentile territory back into Israel, they would shake the Gentile dust off their feet because they didn't want to pollute the Holy Land, the land of Israel. Then Jesus told his disciples, if people don't listen to you, they don't want to hear what you have to say, shake the dust of your sandals off against them. And these guys, the way they were treated there and the way they're run out of Antioch, it says, going out, they must have looked back. I wonder if him and Barnabas looked at each other and said, yeah, let's do it. You know, <laughs> I don't think anybody in Antioch cared, but I think it made them feel really good. They shook the dust of their feet off against them, and then they come to Iconium. This is about 80 miles again. Think of what we're talking about, the way they traveled in those days. So now, last week, we came to Antioch up there, and now they head southeast here to Iconium. You got it there? Guys, I don't want to ignore you over here. Antioch to Iconium. And you'll look here, there's Lystra, chapter 14, and Derby, and then they'll backtrack and come, and then instead of going to Cyprus, their journey's going to be by sea all the way back to Antioch. So at this point in time, it says they come to Iconium. That's 80 to 100 miles from Antioch. And it says, and the disciples back in Antioch were filled with joy 
and with the Holy Ghost. Now just imagine this. They're, they're driven out. They have to leave. However long was he there? Two, three Sabbaths. And they trust this new baby church to the Holy Spirit. It says these new believers are filled with joy and with the Holy Ghost. Those two things go together. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's long-suffering. So, if, you know, sometimes we know Eeyore Christians, don't we? I don't know. You should turn to Christ. It's great. It might be tough. You might. No. Thank you, Eeyore. I think I'll stay a heathen, you know. <laughs> they were filled with the Holy Ghost. They were filled with joy. The interesting thing is they leave, and they leave this church, a two-week-old church. The whole city, how big was it? We don't know. They trust it to the Savior, to the Holy Ghost, and they leave. On their second journey, they're going to come back and ordain elders in those churches. There's some, they recognize some men are stepping to the front as leaders, and then again they leave. So it says, the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Ghost back there in Antioch, and it says, and it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake, again, look, a great multitude, both of Jews and Greeks, believed. How remarkable. And, and look, as we look at this, their goal, and I think it's important for you and I to remember sometime, their goal is not the conversion of the world. Their goal is the evangelization of the world, and that's something different. They don't stay in one town till everybody gets saved before they go. Their goal is not the conversion of the world. Their goal is that the gospel would be heard everywhere. And then they left the work up to God. It was the evangelization of the, of the world, not the, not the conversion. That was God's work. So here they come now to Iconium, back into the synagogue. They've probably still got lumps from Antioch. And, and they're there preaching the good news, N-E-W-S, north, east, west, south, wherever they go, I don't know. And it says, and a multitude again believed. But the unbelieving Jews, here they are again, stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected. I like the NIV there. It says it made their minds poisoned against the brethren. Not just Paul and Barnabas, against the believers. Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord. So you got to like that about Paul. You know, you got these, you got these Judaizers, you got these other people poisoning people's minds about what Paul's saying. And it says, so because of that, he stayed a long time. You just got to love that. He wanted to see them grounded. It says, long time therefore, because they were poisoning their minds, abode they speaking boldly, look, in the Lord, now watch what it says here. They're speaking boldly in the Lord, which or who, the Lord, gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They weren't doing it. The Lord was doing it. When signs and when miracles happen through the book of Acts, it's always the Lord that does it. It's never Paul. It's never... It's the Lord that does it. So it says here, they're preaching the word of his grace. The, the, the opponents are trying to poison the minds of people, so God grants signs and wonders to bear testimony of the word of grace that they're preaching, which the Jews perceived as undermining the law. And it says, but the multitude of the city was divided. Go figure, right? Part held with the Jews and part held with the apostles. First time in the book of Acts, they're called apostles. Plural there, by the way. Barnabas is called one as well here. Certainly not one of the twelve, but there was a broader sense of apostles were those who were sent out by the church to bring the message to a lost world. So it says, some held with the Jews, and part of them held with the apostles. And when there was an assault made, both 
of the Gentiles. Now that word is salt. I don't know what your translation is. The idea is running on again. There's this large group evidently that came storming the street somewhere and made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully to stone them. I would say that's using them despitefully. They came to stone them. They were aware of it and they fled unto Lystra and Derbe and the cities of Lyconia. So they flee, you guys there with me, from Lyconia down here to Lystra. See that? It's about 40 miles. On this side, they flee from Iconia down to Lystra, down there. Again, about 40 miles. They flee. That's no fun for a guy who's sick and having a hard time. Paul as they're, they're fleeing there in the area. And they come then down to that area. Now, again, Paul is, when he writes, well, let me get to, to Lystra first. It says, when they were come to Lystra, Derby, in the cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about. So they're going to preach the gospel through this area running for their lives. If you've ever done that, it's no fun. Anybody here ever run for your life? Yeah. I was in Colorado once, and we were a bunch of smart aleck kids, and we said something to some people living back in the mountains we shouldn't have. And a guy came with his rifle, and I know he could have killed us if he wanted to, but he was, we were running. I mean, I'm from Philly. I'm running, and these bullets are going, fling, off the rocks around us. And we finally got back into Fort Collins where I was going to college. And we went to the sheriff's office and said, we, we're all, you know, cactus and stuck up and, you know, just dirty. We, we want to press charges. Now, now, boys, he cut his feet up a cigar. It's a movie. Uh, what are you talking about? And we said, this guy was shooting at us to kill us. He said, where did this happen? We said, in Skull Gulch. He said, Skull Gulch, what did this guy look like? He had a black hat and he had a 30-30 and he had ch- these chaps on. He said, boys, he said, this ain't intention to kill. That was Travis Brinkoff. He could shoot the wings off a fly. If he wanted you dead, you'd be dead. Now get out of here, he said. <laughs> but <laughs> it's still to make you feel good when you're running from somebody shooting. So here are these guys. They're going to run miles, you know. That to get to these looking over their shoulders, I imagine they want to get away from this crowd. And they come to this area then of Lystra. And when they come there, notice it says, there they preached the gospel. doesn't say in the synagogue. This seems to be in the first missionary journey, the first place to call but Paul and Barnabas come, strictly pagans. There's no Jews here. The message he preaches differs. It's really remarkable. Now look. When he is signing off in his swan song in 2 Timothy, he says to Timothy, But thou hast faithfully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, my longsuffering, my charity, my patience, and persecutions and afflictions, which came to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, sound like the news, deceiving and being deceived, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. And that's the present imperative. You, what you need to do and I need to do is continually be in the things that we've learned. And Paul said, He's writing to Timothy, who is now at Lystra, a young boy, who's going to see the miracle that Paul does, that that God does through Paul. Then he's going to see Paul stoned and left for dead. He's going to see him get up again. So then on a second missionary journey, when he comes back to Lystra, Timothy is, is, you know, in the church there and recommended by the leaders, this really good young man, you need to take him. And then Timothy, so, but it's going to be in this scene where Timothy sees these things first. He's raised by a Gentile father, a Greek, but Paul names Lois and Eunice. He's raised by a Jewish mom and grandma. 
So he grew up, Timothy, with his dad talking about Zeus and grandma taking him aside and saying, no, no, Jehovah. With his dad talking about Hercules and his mom taking him aside and saying, no, no, Samson. You know, with his dad taking him aside talking about Caesar and the great kings and his grandmama and grandma, no, no, David and Goliath. David, he killed giant, the Goliath, you know. So he was in the middle of this. And then when this miracle takes place here in Lystra, he sees the reality of the things that had been sown into him as a child. Moms, grandmas, there's a challenge for you. Solomon will say in the book of Proverbs, let me tell you what my father told me. That means when you're teaching your kids, you're teaching your grandkids too. What you're sowing into the next generation goes to the generation after that. And what Eunice and Lois sowed into the life of Timothy in a, in a divided home with a Gentile father, we don't know if he ever got saved, blossomed when he ran into the gospel and when he ran into Paul. And we're going to see that here. So it says, verse 8, there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being crippled from his mother's womb, who never had walked. Now, Dr. Luke's here, so he describes this problem three different ways. This is the third cripple that we're going to see healed in the book of Acts. First, there was the man at the gate, beautiful, and Peter and John, silver and gold have I not, that which I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It says he was crippled from his mother's womb. There's a guy named Enos when Paul, uh, when Peter is coming um, to the coast, to Joppa, and he stops there in this town before he gets there, and there's a crippled man who says he's been crippled eight years, and Peter prays with him, and the God heals him, and then everybody listens to the gospel. This is the third time now, but the doc is there, and he gives a very specific description. He says, first of all, the problem was in his feet. He was impotent, no power in his feet at all. And no doubt his ankles turned, no ability to stand. It says he was sitting there, perfect tense. He had sat and taken his position. He was sitting. He was impotent in his feet, being crippled from his mother's womb. So we know that this is something he's had from birth who never had walked. That's really clear. And he's a man. He's sitting there. And the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly, Paul, beholding him, you know, now he had spoken to the sorcerer, he had seen what was in him, Paul, perceptive guy. It says, the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him, perceived that he had faith to be healed. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And again, here's this Gentile listening to Paul and Barnabas, and they're hearing about this Jewish Messiah who cleansed the lepers and raised the dead and healed the crippled and opened the eyes of the blind. And Paul looks down and sees this guy and perceives that he has faith to be healed. There's something stirring in his heart. I, I, is this for me? Is this Savior for me? Can, could this possibly happen in my life? And then look in verse 10. It says, Paul says with a loud voice, he don't want to do this, you know, it's not like he thinks, well, what if I tell this guy to get up and he don't get up, you know? Then it's just really embarrassing. You know, he doesn't go over and say, you know, I, I kind of think you're, you're really listening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, nobody's looking. Just try, you try to get up. No, he doesn't do that. He says with a loud voice, Yo! You know, it's like Jesus, when he takes a man with a withered hand, he moves him, calls him to the middle of the synagogue so everybody can see. Paul says with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. <laughs> Look what it says. He leaped. And he walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done wrong... The Lord had done it. When people saw what the Paul had done, they lit up, lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of the Lyconium, so they're not in, in Greek or Latin now, 
or Aramaic, the language, the local language, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. But you have to understand what's happening here. This guy, is he 25? Is he 30? We don't know. He's a man. Typically, that would be a 30-year-old. He's been without any power in his feet. Was he born with deformed feet, club feet? Was he born without, you know, neuropathways, without tendons? Was he born with fused bones? Was he? We don't know that. But he's been like this since his mother's womb. In Judaism, they believed if you were born with something like that, it's because God had something against you. This is pagan territory. They believed very much the same thing, that one of the gods had put a curse on him. He probably heard that from the time he was little. Now he's hearing there's a God who loves him, who heals. Like that from his mother's womb, had never walked in his life. Don't know what that's like. Watched other people do. He's not blind. Had never walked. So Paul says, get up. He says it he says it out loud. He, remarkable here. He says, stand upright on your feet. Look, this is creation. There are no tendons, there are no ligaments, there are no muscles there, there are no neuropathways, there's no joints that are working. No rehab. Right? He, he doesn't have to go to a therapist for months. What happens here is what happens when the deaf receive their hearing and the blind receive their sight, and it's instantaneous. What happens here is beyond, you know, if if we had someone in the church that was, and, and we've had people come and just be crippled for years and years and years. Years ago at Costa Mesa, Chuck Smith was teaching, there were two guys sitting in the front row in wheelchairs, and all of a sudden he stopped And he went down, he took one of the guys by the hand, he said, in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he pulled the guy out of the wheelchair, and he walked. He stumbled around, he walked, everybody was going crazy. Then he went back and he finished, you know, the the study, tried to calm everybody down. And his son told me afterwards, I said, Dad, why didn't you pull the other guy up? He said, the Lord didn't tell me to pull the other guy up. (laughs) He said, I'd have pulled him onto his face right on the floor. He said, the Lord didn't tell me to pull that guy up. You know, so it's so interesting to see this, and you think those of you who are medical, you know, any kind of nursing, and you think of what has to happen for this to take place. Now, look, it's important for us because this man was crippled, and what crippled him wasn't drugs, and it wasn't pornography, it wasn't bitterness, it wasn't alcohol. It was something way more severe than that. Because people think, well, I can go to this group, or I can go get counseling for this. These things inside of me that need to get straightened out. No, what the scripture does there is it takes somebody who's beyond all of that. There is no physical, mental, human help for this guy. But this guy looks to Jesus, as Paul is talking about him. And as he is looking at that Jesus, something's in his heart saying, could this really happen? Could it happen to me? What this Jesus you're talking about does, could he do it in my life? And if he can take someone out of that prison that's so defined, so miraculous... If he can take this person who's this crippled, he can take any of us who's crippled by sin, by addiction, by hatred, by whatever it is, you can look to the same Jesus. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you can sit there and just think, can he really do this to me? I'm crippled. Crippled by hatred. I'm crippled by sin, by temptation, by alcohol. I'm crippled. It's impossible for me to do this. But it's the same Jesus. And if he can do in this extreme case, if he can love this man and raise him up instantaneously, 
without therapy, without all of that stuff, without rehab. What can you do in your life and my life? The problem is we look to humans. We look to so many other things. And the reason Christ died on the cross is not so we could go ask for things. We can do that. The Bible says to make our supplications. But the very reason that Christ died on the cross is so what Adam lost in the Garden of Eden could be restored. Adam was driven out. He couldn't fellowship with God. Christ paid the price so that you're not only forgiven, you're justified. There is no sin in your life if you're a believer. And if you're struggling with something you think cripples you, go to Jesus. He loves you. Go to Jesus. Not to Calvary Chapel, not to a pastor. Go to Jesus. Get alone with him to li- just tonight when you get home. Get alone with him. And say, Lord, I'm crippled. I'm bound by this. I'm going through this. And if he can set this man free, the extreme case of what a miracle has to be, he can do it in every one of us. And every one of us here tonight that are saved, he did that in our lives initially. We came from darkness to life. We came from, 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 from death to life. We came from the power of Satan to the power of God. And then sometimes we mess up as Christians and we think, well, he, he's done with me. He, you know, you know, he, he don't want to work in my life. That's baloney. The Christian pilgrimage, the Christian life is a series of failures and successes. And you'll learn more in your failures than you will in your successes. The Christian journey is a journey of failings and then receiving God's grace. It's a series of storms where the Lord tells you, go on across. And you end up in the storm because you were obedient, not because you were disobedient. And those kind of storms were either going into one, we're in the middle of one, or we're getting out of one, but there's another one waiting. Right? And here we are in the last days, and we have a message to a lost world about a Savior that can set them free. That can loose them from whatever's crippling them. And that has to be real in us. We spend time alone with him. And we come from his presence. And we have something. That we have something. We have manna. We have something. Continue to read. Next week when I say, did you read ahead, I, I want to see three hands instead of two. All right. <laughs> but there's remarkable, remarkable things here, and there's lessons for us today. So let's do this. Let's have Tommy come. We'll sing a last worship song or two. <laughs> or two. And, uh, and let's do this. I want you to do this. If you're crippled with something tonight, if something is messing with your Christian walk, when we worship, I want you to forget about everybody else in the room. And I want you to ask Jesus Christ to touch your life tonight. You're his children. He loves you. He paid for you on the cross. You're messing up. You're a bonehead, okay? You're doing something you shouldn't be doing. We can get in that place. It has nothing to do with his love because you're justified. When you accepted Christ, your sin was forgiven, past, present, and future. We've got a bunch of pregnant moms in our church, and the kid, those kids are going to be in the nursery soon. And Jesus died for all their sins, and they ain't been born yet. All their sins are future. Take hold of the, our Savior tonight. Just get home. Spend time alone with him. Just take hold of him now as we sing this last song. Forget about everybody around you. Say, Lord, here, here I am. I, I, I can listen to this, but I want it to be real in my life. If you're here tonight and you've never come to Christ, what bondage are you in? Is it drugs? Is it money? Is it power? Is it hatred? He can set you free from that tonight. He don't want to play church, phony spiritual games. If you don't know Jesus this evening, 
after the service, make your way up here. We'd love to pray with you, give you a copy of the scripture to take with you. But let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's live our individual hearts to the Lord. we got time for two songs, so pick good ones. <laughs> Father, we settle our hearts, Lord. We look to you. And, Lord, we kind of rejoice in this, Lord. We, we see these things, Lord. It comes alive. It rises off the page. And you're able to take someone who's been crippled with something their whole life and set them free, Lord. You're able to make all of the things that don't work right in their life work right, Lord. You're able to make all of the neuropathways and everything that, that can't flow properly flow properly, Lord. You're able to take the compromise in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, and you're able to deal with that and to heal that, Lord. And we pray with David, Lord, let the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let it, Lord. It's our prayer. Let it. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my Lord. You can do that. We all lift, Lord, some measure of crippledness to you tonight. I do as well, Lord. We're your church. We're your bride. We pray you'd be glorified in our midst, Lord. As we lift our voices in praise, we lift our hearts as well. Move among us, Lord. Hear our heart cries. Set us free. Fill us with your spirit. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.